I'm aware that there are many in the building that were not with us last Lord's Day as we had our meeting on Zoom being kept out from our building because of the snowfall. But for those who weren't, I'm going to just give something of a more lengthy review than I generally do just to get you caught up. And for those who were with us last Lord's Day, well, this could be for you what I hope will be a helpful review. I did announce uh, last Lord's Day that we'll be spending the first weeks of this new year endeavoring to explain, examine, and apply the words of the 19th Psalm. And this exercise and exposition and study in the 19th Psalm is what I termed, the, what I, at least I expressed to be, the first installment of what I proposed last week to be a kind of motto as we enter into the new year. I'm not very good at these things, but every now and again I come up with one that tends to make some sense and sort of resonates with me, so I'll share it with you. As this is the 40th year of ministry in Pine Bush, uh, the next month we will commemorate that. Um, and you might think, well, after 40 years, what's there left to say? You said it about it all about millions of times. What, what's the reason you just continue on? Is there anything really fresh, anything really new? Well, my own understanding of God's word is it is so deep and it is so vast and it is so profound and it is so beyond our ability to grasp and in its fullness and in its entirety that we simply never, ever, ever say the final word on any subject of biblical revelation. The Apostle Paul could say, Oh, the depths of the riches, of the wisdom, and of the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his paths, his ways past finding out. Who's known the mind of the Lord? Who's been his counselor? We stand before great riches, unsearchable riches. And at best we see but the foothills of what is so much bigger than anything we could ever say in its fullness and in its, in, in its entirety. So as I look at a new year, I just say, Plenty more in 24. That's what I say. I say there's always more. Plenty more. We've never run out of stuff to say. We've never run out of biblical things to talk about. We've never run out of new avenues and new areas of God's, God's truth to explore. 40 years, this has just been prelude. Just been prelude. It's just been introduction to our hope that we can go as God's people in the coming year and in the coming years if God should grant us more, many more years together. Let's commit ourselves afresh to mine the riches contained in the treasures of Holy Scripture. I've chosen the 19th Psalm for our start to the year because of its attention that's paid to the relationship of the worshiper of God to the two books of revelation that God has made in his creation and in his word, in scripture and in nature all around us, in the world and in the word. The world and the word are indeed the great treasure chests we're called to explore, to have a fuller understanding and a fuller 
apprehension of the knowledge of the Lord and of his worthiness to be the object of our worship, our praise, our faith, our hope, and our love. And this psalm is not only a psalm that holds forth the prospect of knowing God and knowing scripture, but also seeing that this is knowledge that's essential to our well-being. This is knowledge that is given for our good. This is beneficial knowledge. This is salutary knowledge. This is desirable knowledge. This is knowledge worthy of our most studious and our most persistent pursuit as the people of God. Now, this psalm is the 19th of 150 compositions that we call the Book of the Psalms. And one of the things that I've become increasingly aware of and increasingly I'm getting on my phone. You're all getting that? National Weather Service, snow squall until 1245. Thank you very much. We have the, the window forecast right out here. Not a snow. It is fullness. But the National Weather Service is, uh, is keeping us up to date. We're glad, glad, glad they're, on the, they're on the job. <laughs> well, this is 19 of 150 psalms that, as I'm saying, increasingly unaware is uh, not a, a random throwing together a bunch of songs. It's more like Sgt. Pepper's than the best of Barbie Darren. <laughs> just grow, I grew up in the 60s, so I have such analogies. It's not just a bunch of songs that come from all different parts of someone's life and career thrown together in a random best of album. It's something like Sgt. Pepper's put together really to develop something of a story with songs that have some measure of interrelation to one another. These are songs that have interrelation to one another. Early psalm study, notice, this is even uh, in ancient times when the rabbis were writing their Mishnahs, and uh, they discovered that there were five books to the psalms. Now, you don't read the psalms in the Hebrew and see five books readily there, but it is seen when you look at what the psalms, uh, how the psalms are presented to us. Uh, the real way to see this is in Psalm 72. Turn to Psalm 72. That's almost the middle of the, of the 150. You come to 72 Psalms, and you notice at the end of Psalm 72, the last verse, verse 20, says, The prayer of David, the son of Jesse, are ended. It's kind of like you've come to the end of a book, right? The prayers of David, the son of Jesse, are ended. And then just before it says that, it says this, Blessed be Yahweh, the God of Israel, who alone does wondrous things, blessed be his glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. This is a benediction that's found three other times in the book of the Psalms. It's found in some version of this, blessed be the Lord, blessed be his name, blessed be uh, his, the, the whole earth being filled with his glory. Amen and amen. It is repeated some Three other times, and at each point, you see there's an end of a book, just like here. Just like here. The prayers of David, the son of Jesse, are ended. The book of the Psalms begins, really, with a whole collection of Psalms of David. They're David's Psalms that go from the third Psalm to the 42nd, uh, 41st Psalm. And what do you look at, what do you find at the end of Psalm 41? Well, look. 
You come to this end of this whole selection of David's psalms. They're all David's psalms in that whole section. And you come to the last one. Psalm 41 and verse 13. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Amen and amen. That's just an abbreviated version of what you find in Psalm uh, 72 verse 19. It's just an abbreviation, but the best it's also a doxology, utilizing many or most of the same words. And then Psalm 42 begins with the songs of the sons of Korah. And begins a whole different collection. So you have a division of a book. So Psalm 1 to 41 is book 1. Psalm 42 to Psalm 72 is book 2. Psalm 73, and then you go down to Psalm 89. And you want to turn there, just to show you how you get this whole idea of five books, is in Psalm 70, 80, 89, in verse 52, Blessed be the Lord forever. Amen and amen. There's the same thing, even more abbreviated, but basically the same idea. And then at that point, you really have come to an end of a whole series of Psalms with priestly authors, and you come to Psalm 90, and you come to a prayer of Moses. You're coming out of the priestly domain into the one who led the people, and then it, it goes into a whole bunch of Yahweh Melech psalms. There's a whole uh, collection of psalms that speak of the Lord reigns, the Lord reigns, the Lord reigns, the Lord reigns. And you come down to the end of Psalm 106. Psalm 106, you see it again. Blessed be Yahweh, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting, and let all people say, Amen, praise the Lord. So you have Psalm 1 to 41, book 1, Psalm 42 to Psalm 72, book 2, Psalm 73 to Psalm 89, book 4, Psalm 90 to Psalm 106. I'm sorry, I got that wrong. <laughs> I got the number wrong. Psalm 90 to 106 is book 4, Psalm 107 to 150 is book 5. That's how you get the five books. When you see that it has those natural divisions where a certain collection of Psalms of David come to an end, the prayers of David come to an end, comes to an end of a book that uh, that um, uh, benediction is given and it moves on to another book usually with a different uh, selection of authors so each of these books tell their own story they function in ways that unfortunately this morning we don't have time to explain but I have explained at other times in other studies that we've done but there is this division of the books but we not only have divisions of books but in this book of the Psalms we also have collections of books as we saw, there was a collection of David Psalms. There's a collection of Korah Psalms. There's a collection of Asaph Psalms. There's a collection of Psalms that are called Psalms of Ascent, Psalms of Journey, where the people of Israel sang the praises of God as they left their homes and they went on a journey to Jerusalem at the appointed festivals in the year to worship the Lord in the temple in Jerusalem. And so we have the five books, we have these numbers of collections, of different collections of psalms that are put together in the book, and then we also have not only books and collections, we also have another category, which is clusters. We have certain clusters of psalms, psalms that when you put them together, uh, have relationship to one another. And it seems to me that's where we come to Psalm 19. I've gone into all this for that very purpose of telling you that Psalm 19 is one of these cluster select sections in which there's a clear relationship, at least in my understanding, between Psalm 19 and its neighboring psalms. And the giveaway here for me is the fact that Psalm 15, where this cluster begins, 
is a psalm of approach to God in his worship on the holy hill. Who shall sojourn in your tent? Who will approach God in his tabernacle? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? The holy hill likely of Zion where David brought the ark of the covenant and put it into a tent. What are the qualifications for drawing near to God, to approaching God? And then Psalm 15 has a corresponding psalm in Psalm 24, which is where this cluster ends. It begins in 15 and it ends in 24. And you have the same idea that's found in verse 3. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? It's almost a repetition of what you have in Psalm 19. Who shall stand in his holy place? And then the answer is given in terms of clean hands and a pure heart. Again, qualifications similar to the qualifications you have in the 15th Psalm. So Psalm 15 and Psalm 24 that are at the outer edges of this cluster of Psalms. And they both deal with the subject of our approach to God. Okay? Does Psalm 19 have something to tell us about approaching God? Well, yes it does. And one of my purposes in expounding the psalm is to show you exactly what it tells us about how we can and should approach God. Well, Psalm 23, Psalm uh, 16 comes along, and Psalm 16 has its basic theme, how we find our fullness of blessedness and realization of our purpose in life in the Lord God himself. He is the one who we have no good apart from. All of our good is found in Him. He is the one who gives us counsel. He is the one who gives us joy. He is the one who teaches us, who leads us, who keeps us, who preserves us, who makes, who makes a, 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 a path of life where we know presence, uh, we know fullness, fullness of joy in His presence. Go to the other end where Psalm 24 was. Go one less. What do you find? Psalm 23. The shepherd's psalm. The God who leads. The God who guides. The God who counsels as a shepherd. The God who provides as a host. Who prepares a table for us in the presence of our enemies. Our cup runs over. Who shows us the path of life. Truly goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. And then joy in his presence, I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. See how the themes repeat in Psalm 16 and Psalm 23. Well, you have the same thing also in Psalm 17. And the other end in Psalm 22. And there are the cries that are off, uttered in the presence of God of the innocent afflicted one. The one who is the victim of the acts of heartless cruelty and brutal persecution of others. Hear a just cause, O oh my God, attend to my cry. Having his correspondence at the other end. My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Why are you so far from me? And the voice of my groaning, calling upon God to take note. He's in this plight that has been placed upon him by his enemies. And all of this becomes something of a trial and a test of the afflicted one. And the afflicted one ultimately finds resolution, finds that the God whom he trusts is the God who provides deliverance from his enemies. 
who rescues his, uh, his, 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 his precious one from, from the dogs and those that would hurt and wound them. This correspondence that the afflicted find refuge, the afflicted find hope in a world of cruelty, in a world of persecution, in their God who provides deliverance and provides protection. And the final correspondence between these neighboring psalms you find in 18 where the theme is again the God who comes to his people in the midst of their troubles and not only just gives a, 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 a hearing ear uh, that they can unburden their hearts and ultimately uh, bring some help but he's the God who ultimately causes them to triumph there's victory for God's people. There's victory for God's king. There's victory for all who trust in him and find refuge in him and find help in him. And that's the exact same note you find in Psalm 20 and 21. May the Lord answer you in the day of trouble. May the God of Jacob protect you. May he send you help from the sanctuary, give you support from Zion. O Lord, save the king. In verse 21, the king is saved. Be exalted, O Lord, in your strength. We will sing praise to you in the light of your power. His glory is great through your salvation. God gives fullness of help and deliverance to his people and joy in his presence. And my assertion is that central to that whole list of concerns that ought to be our concerns this morning, ought to be our concerns to approach God acceptably. To approach God in the right way. Our concern should be also to trust in God. As the Psalms of Trust in 16 and 23 express trust in a God who leads and tends and, and, and cares and provides for his people. And then we should be a people who also are able to cry to God in our troubles. To bring to him our burdens and our needs in the midst of persecution, in the midst of affliction, in the midst of opposition from a heartless, cruel, and bitter world and find in the Lord our help. And then we are the people who are looking ultimately for that final note of triumph that meets us in God's grace that we are indeed more than conquerors through him who loved us. We're not on the side that loses. We're not defeated. We're not to hang our heads in, low, in lowliness, thinking it's an end, the end of the world, the end of, of, uh, of uh, everything that's good. And No, we are those who are more than conquerors. In all these things, Paul says, and he's speaking of tribulation and distress, he says in all these things, we are, not will be, we are, now, today, more than conquerors to him who loved us. And Psalm 19 central to all of this. It's central to being well instructed as God's people in the way of approach, in the way of trust, in the way of prayer in the time of need, in the way of comfort and consolation, that we serve a God to whom the victory is secured. Psalm 19 central. It had a whole constellation of things that surround it. Now we need to look at Psalm 19 itself. And we began a little bit last week when we said something about the unity of the book. One of the things commentators try to do is they try to separate the content of these psalms to make them into maybe different psalms that were sort of spliced together and they don't really belong together. 
And certainly there are differences between these sections. There's a different name of God that's used in the first section. The name Elohim, the more general name of God. There's the name Yahweh in the second section. And that's to be understood by the fact that Psalm 19 verses 1 to 6 speaks about a revelation that's accessible to every corner of the globe. There's no place that people are not exposed to the heat of the sun. And there's no place where people are not exposed to the reality of a God who makes his glory known. Or a God to whom the heavens declare his glory. They're all eyewitnesses of that reality of a God who made the heavens and the earth and all things therein. So the Elohim, Elohim is appropriate. And then with the law, speaking of the word that God gives to his covenant people, to the people whom he redeems, he comes with that personal name. He comes with that name Yahweh. And so we understand it, that the content makes each name appropriate. And it doesn't necessarily mean that these psalms don't belong together. They're put together for a reason. And they're put together because they belong together. And what I said in our Bible reading, they do constitute what today kids would call a mashup. Of taking two songs that maybe were recorded differently or separately and bringing them together really because they sound so good together. They make so much sense together. Putting them together, one sheds light upon the other. And I believe that's what we have in these psalms. These are psalms that speak of two great books of revelation that God has given. God's revelation of himself in the created order. The heavens declare the glory of God. The sky above proclaim his handiwork. Day by day pours out speech. Night to night reveals knowledge. There's no speech nor their words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth. Their words to the end of the world. And then he speaks about how the sun runs its race and shows forth something again of God's glory and the way it passes through the heavens, bringing its light to everything that it touches. Wonderful poem. It's a remarkable poem. It's a poem that is a powerful display of the reality of what's oftentimes in theology called God's general revelation. God's word of revelation to all people in all places. Well, it's not, times people do is they take this notion of a general revelation, a revelation accessible to all people in all places, and they tend to think, think, well, okay then, that means that people who only have a general revelation from God can really have a, a natural religion. They can form a religion that's a properly understood, cogent, acceptable religion. Yeah, it's better to have a revealed religion, but hey, they can get to the same place at the end just by following what God has made known of himself in general revelation. But the reality is, folks, what Scripture tends to teach us, very, I think very clearly, is that what's known of God to the people of the world, they tend to, they tend to suppress. They tend to distort. They tend to exchange. Paul could say, knowing God, they glorified him not as God, but exchanged the glory. The glory that's revealed in creation. The glory of the incorruptible God for the likeness of birds and beasts and creeping things. They corrupt their knowledge. It's true knowledge that the heavens declare his glory. It's true knowledge. The world itself declares, I didn't get here on my own. God created me. God sustains me. God operates through me. 
But the people of this world just don't seem to get it. They tend to corrupt their knowledge. They tend to pervert their, their, their knowledge. But this is an expression not so much to tell us what the people of the world either know or don't know. This is revelation that's given to us as God's people telling us how we're to look at our world. Tells us what we're to see in our world. We're not to look at our world as the children of God and think, well, there's a distinction between what is secular and what is spiritual. This is a full display of God's glory that meets us at every point of human existence. At every point of human understanding, we see the fingerprints of God. We see His handiwork, the works of His hands in everything that is before our eyes. And not just before our eyes in terms of creation. I mean, we don't actually see creation. Uh, we see the effects of creation, and we also see the fact that things are created things. And we also th see the handiwork of God in pre pre preserving, providing for his creation. We call it providence. So we see the providential fingerprints of God also in everything that's made. I made reference to a song that Dylan wrote during his so-called Christian days, where he in every in every he sees the master's hand in every uh, leaf that trembles and in every uh, grain of sand and there's a certain reality to that where we ought to see the handiwork of God but even as we think of these psalms as a mashup between what are oftentimes called a creation psalm and a Torah psalm, bringing them both together, we're given as God's people to understand that there are certain things we need to be learning, certain things we need to be knowing, that there are things that the study of creation ought to teach us. And I want to just begin here, and again, we started late. This is lengthy review. We have the Lord's Supper coming up. So much of what I the fullness of the picture I have to bring into next week. But I want to just say something about as we see creation we need to see it through the light of creation psalms Psalm 19, Psalm 8, Psalm 104 and there are three things I think that such a study reveals to us as the people of God. What does the study of creation teach you and me? Well first of all it teaches the glory of God. The heavens declare God's glory. What in the world is God's glory? Well, the word for glory that's used in Hebrew is a word that speaks of weight. It speaks of fullness. It speaks of abundance. It speaks of the fact that in God there's a fullness of life and there's a fullness of attributes, a display of the qualities of divine existence that meets our eyes in every place we look. Paul says the invisible things of him are clearly seen through the things that are made. His eternal power and his divinity. We see something of divine power in the things that are made. In the, thing, in, 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 in the power of a thunderstorm. In the power of what the Hubble telescope is able to bring back in terms of information about the things that exist in this universe that are awesome in its display. We see the handiwork of God. And there was a movie that was made some years ago. It was called Contact. And in this movie Contact, 
the rationale that was given for the reason that there's other life out there, this alien life that we can get in contact with and somehow in some way is the fact that if there wasn't, what a waste of space is what kept being repeated. There's this incredible waste of space. Well, there's no waste of space. If the whole design and purpose of creation is to show forth the power, the praises, the godhood of who God is, that we, the earth dwellers, just see the marvel. We're in the theater of, of, of greater than the Hayden Planetarium because we see not just the brightness and the splendor of the creation, but we get something of a hint of the fullness that is in the life of the one who made all things, who is the creator of heaven and earth and everything that is in it. But it's not only the glory of God in the full display of who he is, but there's also the goodness of God that's displayed. We read the 104th Psalm, where every creature goes out to receive their food from God. And again, well, we get our food from Hannaford's. We get our food from Walmart or ShopRite. But the reality is we're dependent upon God for daily bread. We're dependent upon God for daily strength to go out and earn it or to go out and grow it or to provide it. It is God who causes his sun to shine upon the good and the evil that there would be harvests and fruitful seasons. As Paul says in Acts 19, God has not left himself without witness. He is given rain and fruitful seasons, filling our hearts with gladness. And so the very fact of God's glory, the very fact of God's goodness revealed in the created order tells us there is a God to approach. There is a God to be trusted. There is a God who, need, who we need to vindicate us from all the troubles and trials of, of life. That there is a God who brings ultimate victory to all who come to him and trust in him and are his true and faithful worshipers. But if all we know is what we see in creation, we just say, how do we approach him then? How does heaven and earth tell us? How does the providential care of God tell us the way of his approach? In fact, what, another thing that the created order tells us is that we're simply ignorant. We're simply ignorant. Turn back to Psalm 8. And we're not ignorant of everything. We're ignorant that there is a God. We're ignorant that he's powerful, he's mighty, he's wise. There's fullness of life in him. But we're given to know we can know him in uh, the stuff of our own wisdom just by looking at his majesty revealed in the heavens. Look at the, listen to these words. O Lord our God, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You've set your glory above the heavens. Verse 3, when I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place, then I understand fully. Well, actually, no. He says, what is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? It's interesting. He says, first of all, this heaven and earth, in order to come to any degree of understanding of our place in it, it has to be studied. It has to be looked at. And it's out of our mind, it's out of our sight, it's out of our mind. We're just not considering it. We need to be students of this world in which we are made. But even when we become students of this world in which we are made, we're still left with a sense of our own ignorance. We're left in a sense of our own insignificance in the light of the immensity of the world in which we live. Now, the ancient world had a sense of the immensity of the universe. 
I mean, look at the moon, the stars that you've ordained. What is man that you're mindful of him? Look at the splendor. Look at the majesty. Look at the scope. Look at the immensity of all the world, of the heavens. We're puny little nobodies and puny little nothings. There's a favorite play of mine. I'm going to tell it real quick. It's called Carousel. Tells a story about a carnival barker and a woman and a girl who works in a mill. They both lose their jobs. They both meet at a bench outside of the carousel and they're in love. And the guy says in the midst of a starlit night that you can't, can't even count the stars in the sky. And the sky's so great, the sea is small. And two little people, you and I, we don't count at all. We don't count at all. That's what he sees in the stars. That's what he sees in the immensity of the world. He sees, I'm unimportant, I'm insignificant. And then he says at another point, on a night like this, I sit and wonder what life's all about. And then the girl says to him, well, I always say two heads are better than one to figure it out. And she wants to get part, be part of his life. So let's, let's, let's search it out together. But the point of the psalm is, you can have two people searching out together and you can have added by the whole creation of six billion people. We cannot figure out what life's about. If God has not spoken in his revealed word. Again, Psalm 8. What is man that you are mindful of him? The son of man that you care for him? You've made him a little lower than the heavenly beings. How did you know that? creation account of Genesis 1 God made man in his image and his likeness you crowned him with glory and honor you've given him dominion he blessed him and said be fruitful multiply fill the earth subdue it have dominion over it he's refashioning the creation account we know our place our purpose our meaning our significance in the world not just by looking at the stars not just by searching the Hubble telescope. Not just by becoming experts in the, sci the sciences. It's by hearing and heeding the word of the living God. That's the relationship between the two books. Yes, we see God is great. We see he's majestic. We see he's all glorious. We see he's good. But how do we approach? How do we trust? How do we pray? How do we take counsel and know that we are victorious in this life? Take up and read. Take up and read. It's what we find in the book of God in his special revelation in the Torah. A splendid bringing together of a mash. A bringing together of a mashup of a Torah song and a creation psalm in a beautiful splendor to answer the basic questions that you and I have in life. Well, this has not gone the way I expected to go when I mapped it out at the beginning. Snow came and disrupted that. The fact that I tried to just bring last week's message, this week's message, all together in my own little mashup this morning. I hope it's been helpful. Let's commit our thoughts to the Lord in prayer. Father, we're thankful again that you have revealed yourself, made yourself known, and we are the recipients of that revelation for our good. It's meant to bless us. It's meant to benefit us. It's meant to bring us 
into the answers to the great questions of life that we may thrive and abound by your grace and by your presence and by your blessing. So receive our praise and thanksgiving and be with us as we continue our pursuit of you and our pursuit of a knowledge of you through these Psalms and, and the rest of Scripture that, Lord, we would be a people that are ever-growing throughout the totality of this coming year in the grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, as we'd ask these things in his name. Amen. Amen. Let's sing together number 186. Number 186. i mm-hmm. 